Hey everyone, a quick note before we get started. This episode is going to sound a little unusual. It is the first in a series of conversations that we recorded at Inbound in November. Over the next month, we'll be releasing each of these conversations. Today's guest needs really no introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear from Alec Baldwin. I'm Kit Bodner, and this is The Grove Show, live. So this small room, you all paid thousands of dollars <laughs> to come to this We just show. like them a lot, you know. Uh, appreciate you being here. If you humor me, I'd like to start our conversation with a meta-conversation about podcasting. <laughs> We're on a podcast, and I would love to talk to you about podcasts, because you've got one. And what strikes me about your podcast is your interview style. Talk to me a little bit about how you, how you think about interviewing. Well, first of all, what strikes you about it? What strikes you? You fill in people's answers. I do. Yeah. I do. talk over them is what you're trying to say politely. No, you don't talk over them. You, suge- you suggest something as part of the question. Well, I think that the interesting thing, as some people have figured out, is that it's not an interview, it's a conversation. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I hate that word. <laughs> you know, like you'll see advertisements for programming where it says, you know, Bob Smith, in conversation with. There's a lot of in conversation yeah. with marketing, which I find kind of boring. But my whole thing is that... Uh, um, there's people who come and I'm trying to elicit in them that it's okay to talk about something among a variety of things we might talk about. It's okay to talk about certain things because I'm not out to get you. you. You know, just offer an explanation as to some opinion you have or your career or your, your beliefs. Don't be afraid to come out on the diving board or whatever metaphor you want to use with me because I'm not out to get anybody. I, first of all, I never bring people on who I don't like. I never bring on somebody who I actively dislike. And, and if it was somebody that I wasn't a big fan of their work, let's say, uh, uh, George Will, the conservative uh, reporter for ABC News, who's now with, I guess he's with Fox, sure. right? George Will came on, and I'm not somebody who believes in the things that George Will believes in, but I respect his career. And you have people come on and you want to, and he was very, very, not awkward, but he was very, very hesitant. You could tell when I was talking to him, he was very, he wasn't going to give me any anything real. You know, he had a kind of a set, a bunch of answers he's always been giving, which is really the antithesis of what I'm trying to do. I try to get people to talk about something they haven't spoken about, that they feel comfortable with. And the last thing I'll say about this is that the key to that, I feel terrible that I'm looking only at you here. <laughs> the key to that, <laughs> I think, is uh, that you don't try to take it from them. Like, I'm talking to you. The length of the format is critical there. We talk for one hour. Everyone's told that the conversation's one hour. And we cut it down to a 35 or 40 minute podcast with our other content we have in there. And we say to people, you know, I, I realize that like 20 minutes in, if you don't try to grab it from them, they'll give it to you. They'll tell you how they really feel about something. We're looking for some honest dissertation from them on some part of their career, their work, and so forth. And they'll talk to you about And none of it has to be so like deeply introspective or self-examining, it could be just appreciation. You know, they can come on and say, God, I, I worked with this person and I love this. I just, Michael Stipe is on now. I just listened to that, it's really interesting. Did you like the one with Stipe? Yeah, I did. And Stipe talks a lot about how uh, claiming who he was through his voice, like he didn't really thought he had a great voice and like what people were appreciating about his singing, he didn't get it. And then eventually he did get it. Like, you, like one day you wake up in this position, you sit there and go, well, I am who I am and I am many of the things people say I am and, and uh, you just, 
you don't try to dismiss that. And I, I, I found that very interesting how he, he made peace with his talent in that way, you know. Yeah, it seems like in that one, he took a little while to understand his talent and understand actually what he wanted to do. Going on from the podcast, thinking a little bit about SNL and, uh, and the election and, and everything that's been going on with you. You were on a five-week journey with the Trump impersonation, and what was that experience like? Normally when you do, I mean, I'm not an impressionist, but in any of the stuff I've done that's comedy, the writing, wherever we had to do any impersonations, there's a, there's a short menu of people that I would attempt, and not even do them that well, yeah. because it's not about the authenticity. It's about some essence that w w when you shoot that out there, you, you're trying for something and you hope people that that connects. So you do impersonations of people, and you don't necessarily sound like them, but you, if you're close enough, and then what you're putting out there is this kind of, if you think it's funny, this caricature of who they are, it's like a drawing. It's like Oliphant or Steve Brodner or Barry Blitt, from the, both oh, those two guys from The New Yorker. When people draw a cartoon, the people are always fatter than they really are. They're always more wild-eyed than they really are. They're always more something than they really are. They're always skinnier than they really are. You exaggerate everything. And in these impersonations, you exaggerate. But with Trump, I, I usually only do that with people I really like and appreciate. You know, Pacino, De Niro, Brando, people I've watched mm -hmm. for, for millions of years. And... Um, with Trump, I didn't feel that way. And I, when Lauren asked me to do it, I said, I can't do Trump. I don't really do it. I don't, I've never done that before. <laughs> you want know, to do it on, on TV now in front of all these people during this period of our country's uh, uh, electoral season. And uh, I wound up just sitting watching Trump, which I never did that, that much of. I mean, even during the campaign, I, I, when, 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 when politicians of whatever stripe are on TV making their statements, I just turn the channel. I don't really spend much time. Because you can always go online and just read it later. <laughs> I barely watch TV anymore anyway. But Me too. Yeah, I've got three kids, so I'm running around, chasing them around so they don't smash my antique clocks in my house. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we don't even have any more. We got rid of them. We put them in storage. But um, the... Uh, my point, though, is, is that, uh, so I watched hours of him mm -hmm. and got that whole thing down, you know, the mouth and the kind of masticating, you know, sure. grab them by the... <laughs> I'm in my second room, literally going, I, I swear to God, I was in a room for like a half an hour going, grab. <laughs> grab. <laughs> grab. <laughs> and trying to, like, get into that kind of thing of how his mouth works, you know. I, I mean, I, you know, we did that. People appreciated that. They thought it worked. Yeah. SNL has had many other people do that. You know, sure, Hammond sure. and Taron did it and everything. And everybody has their own thing. And I just do my version, you know. It's like I just did my thing. And I'm literally stunned <laughs> that it worked. I mean, people, you know, the, the one we did, the well. first one, um, I think SNL's YouTube page of our first debate thing had 21 million viewings. I was, I was, they showed me that I couldn't believe it. I, wow. I don't think 21 million people have ever watched anything I've done <laughs> in my entire career. But um, the, she's like, no, they haven't. <laughs> Probably not. But uh, I, I do want to say that, that, of course, you're hitting the ball back and forth with someone, even though that, in yeah. that format where we're both talking to a, a moderator, uh, I, I'm part of a scene, and my scene partner, per se, there is no one who is more talented. I love, love, love Kate McKinnon. She was incredible. And I love doing it with her. Oh, so God, incredible. I love her. I, we, we would hug each other after each show and be like, <laughs> what's going to happen to us? <laughs> <laughs> We're destroying the country. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to go to hell. 
but I love her. I mean, literally, of like, of, of like all the people I've worked with in the business, she's like in the top ten of the people I've worked with now because she's so talented. She's oh incredibly God, she's talented. So talented. Yeah. Gosh, amazing. You talked a little about Lord Michaels, and I didn't actually. Prepare. <laughs> well, you mentioned him. You mentioned, well, you, you, you mentioned him briefly there, right? And you're very good. You're very good. Are you in the police department? You a cop? <laughs> no, that would be far Are less. You do this on the side. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so Tina Fey in her book talks a ton about her experience with Lauren as well. What is it like to work with somebody who has who's basically been doing something for 45 years, like a really long run, and been able to maintain greatness, which I think is a really hard thing to do? Well, there's so many things you can say about him, and books that are written about him can yeah. give you some insight into that. About, And that would take you know five minutes to even scratch the surface <laughs> of these topics. But Lauren is somebody who... Started off as a writer. He's on my podcast. You should listen to that podcast. And he talks about his early days in Canada, then going to L.A. and doing Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In and working for uh, uh, different you know, uh, talk shows and writing, 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 writing in uh, uh, L.A. And then they ask him to come and do Saturday Night Live and all that falls in place. Then he leaves Saturday Night Live and starts to tank and he comes back and, and, and reinvigorates it. You know, Lorne is somebody who... He occupies a very, very strange and unusual kind of crevice in the, in the business, which is that he's really kept his composure and he's really kept his wits about him while everyone around him, not all of them, but many of them are kind of, you know, these kooky, crazy comedy people. <laughs> Some of them are not with us any longer. Some of whom died because of their excesses and their emotional problems. And, uh, uh, but Lorne is like really, he's, he's, he's wise. There's just no other way to put it. I mean, this is a joke version to illustrate that wisdom, but I get nominated for an Emmy the first year we did 30 Rock and I lose to Jimmy Spader in the show Boston Legal. And we go to the Emmys and I don't win. And when you don't win, you go to the governor's ball for the Academy and they have a big dinner under a tent and there's 500, 600 people there. Many of them are people who are in the Academy. And the dinner is a great opportunity for them to mingle with celebrities and take pictures and so forth. They're kind of uh, um, in the TV Academy, in whatever branch, you know, technical, writing, producing, directing, acting, music. And, they, and, they, and they're there, and they want to mingle in this under this tent. So I don't win, and I go greet Spader, which is the tradition you go and find. You go find that guy that won, in my category, a guy, and you go and, and you greet that guy and congratulate. Then you go. You're not, you're, they're not there to see you. They're all there to go all kind of uh, uh, focus on Spader. So we leave. Then the following year, I win. And I got to stay there for like three hours and take pictures with these people. We're there for three hours. And when we finally leave, I take pictures with 200 people. And as I'm leaving, Lauren's with me, and we're all holding our Emmys in our hands. And I go, man, I can't believe, you know, when you win, it really is a pain in the ass, man. You got to say, God, you got you to take pictures with all these people. When I lost last year, I just was out of there in 10 minutes. And this year, I got to take pictures for like two hours with these people. And Lauren just looked at me and he goes, but it is better, right? <laughs> but it is better when you win, right? Like he's always there to remind you, because you do, because actors do focus on the wrong thing from time to time, and he's been that way. That's symbolic of the way he's been with me all of my career. You know, when Tina was playing Palin, and that was a very obviously successful on par with what we did with uh, uh, Trump and so forth and, and Hillary, and when Tina was playing Palin. The same thing, I was on Long Island, I live on eastern Long Island, and this famous director wanted me to come and see a cut of a film of a documentary he was doing about the life of Robert Mitchum, the actor. Uh, uh, Bruce Weber, the, the photographer who always makes films, and Bruce said, come see 20 minutes of my cut of my film, Nice Girls Don't Stay for Breakfast is the name of the 
British movie. But um, Lauren calls me and says, do you want to come in and do this sketch with Tina and with the real Palin, where you're going to walk up to Palin and say, God, Tina, can you believe this woman is such a moron? And you're going to be talking to Palin, thinking it's Tina, and say all these judgmental things about Palin. And I said to Lauren, I go, I can't do that. I've got to go to this screening. They're having this very intimate screening at Bruce's house in Montauk. He's only invited 20 people to come and see a rough cut of 20 minutes of his... Uh, of his uh, film about Mitchum, about Robert Mitchum. I want to go see this movie about Mitchum. And there's a long pause, and Lauren goes, he goes, well, good for you. <laughs> he said, good for you. You stay out there, and don't come in, and don't be part of probably the most important comedy sketch of the year. <laughs> and be on the show and be a part of it. You stay out there, and you watch your little movie about Robert Mitchum. 20 minutes, by the way, of your little movie about Robert Mitchum. Good for you. <laughs> and he has that way of, he knows the business. He knows... When there's enough. In that way, he almost functions as an airsats manager. And I guess my point is, he's never given me bad advice. Because he's the one that said to me, I said, I can't play Trump. I don't do Trump. I was supposed to be down in New Orleans doing a film that I had to pull out of because of the schedule. And uh, I did it. And uh, I mean, my God, I can't believe people. It's been incredible. Yeah, thought that they, they, they appreciated that that much. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier this morning that... I'm sorry I'm not giving you shorter answers. No, I love the answers. They're great. You mentioned this morning that 30 Rock... Is that an Apple Watch? It is. You like Apple Watch? Uh, I'm, I'm medium on the Apple Watch. Okay. I like it enough to wear it. That's a good answer. That's yeah. a good answer. Yeah. They, have, they have some work to do. Yeah. Okay, so this morning you mentioned that 30 Rock was your best working experience. I forget the right. actual words that you said. Best job I ever had. Yeah, best job you ever had. In every way. Was there, was there a day when you were doing that job that you realized that? Or did you only realize it afterwards? There were, there, were, there, were, there were many of them. Oh, there were many of them. I mean, every time you said these words that they wrote, Robert Carlock, who writes with Tina now for Kimmy Schmidt, and Robert, you know, Tina and Robert were the head writers of the show. And they just, I mean, these lines you would say. Like, every day we're shooting, all the lines we were shooting, I remember thinking to myself, you know, this is the funniest writing I'm ever going to see in my life, you know? <laughs> then I mentioned on stage, I play the gay Mexican soap opera star. Right. That was... Uh, an you unexpected know, uh, day, I imagine. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, when I got to say the line, I said, uh, 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 I will make the abuela fall in love with me. Uh, I, 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 what did I say something about, you know, uh, I will give a performance that, that it would be like Yuli Harris in the Bella of Amherst. I said. <laughs> and because they're just the references. And I would sit there. We would be shooting, and I couldn't keep a straight face. I'd be laughing, you know. And that's not the way it is. Most comedy that you do, and this is just unavoidable. I mean, everything can't be great. Most stuff you do is more cute than funny. It's not that funny. It's okay. And when we were with them, doing it with them, you know, it was like every day would be, you'd sit there and go, I can't believe I'm going to say this line. I've got to try to keep a straight face. It's funny. Yeah, if, if most stuff's more cute than funny, what makes something funny? That's very subjective. I mean, some people like gross-out humor, and they like, uh, you know, everything about sex. They like everything. They like a lot of gay jokes. They like a lot of fart jokes. They like a lot of whatever jokes. And uh, I think 30 Rock, part of it was they, they, they didn't take the audience for granted and they knew that the audience was way ahead of them, so it was very much paced up. Boom, 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 boom. I would, do, I would, sit to, I would say to Carrie Fisher, thank you so much, uh, Jan, for coming in. It's good to see you again. And then as she, just as she goes out there, I go, don't ever ask me to talk to a woman that age again. <laughs> and, then, and then as soon as I finish it, and you're going to laugh, we move on to the next thing. So it was like, boom, boom. They drove it. They gave the, the show the stick all the way to the finish line, so to speak. And um, I think the pace was a big part of it. 
Because a lot of people, they, they tell a joke and then they let it hang. Like, huh? Huh? <laughs> that was funny, right? <laughs> and they kind of let it breathe too long. How do you know something's funny in the moment without an audience like that? Well, you know, you've done... You have to trust your own instinct. Yeah. Well, I knew they were funny because we just, uh, you know, very quickly. I mean, I can't recount it now, but there's so many episodes of the show. Um, just the circumstances. Even just for me to say that my wife was uh, uh, Elizabeth Banks and she's kidnapped by Kim Jong-il and put in a, a, a sex slave program. She's a sex slave of Kim Jong-il. And uh, I'm on the phone, and I love how it's the way it's done. <clears throat> it's the way that it's served up the joke. So I'm on the phone with somebody from the State Department. I'm like, uh-huh. I'm like, well, you got to get over there, and you got to get her. I mean, this is my wife. This is my wife, my God, my wife. She's over there with Kim Jong-il. God knows what's going to happen to her. Or whatever the words were. And there's a pause, and I'm going like, who? No, 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 don't send Clinton. Don't send Clinton. <laughs> I'm like barking at someone on the phone. Don't send Clinton to go save my wife, like like Lisa Ling's sister or whatever. You know, like don't. I don't want my wife on a on a private transport plane with Clinton on the way back from Seoul. Um, so it was the way they did it, to the way they 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 framed it was so funny. Contrast that with what it's like to be on stage. Early in your career, you did a lot of Broadway and and stage performances. When you go back to that, you do that, which you've which you've done over the years. Why do you do that? What's the benefit of being on stage? Well, I think it's very similar, but in the theater, it's more like the, uh, it's this very similar to the way I live my life now with my family, which is, you know, I met a woman back in 2011, so it's five years ago. It'll be six years ago in uh, uh, February of next year, and um, I was joking. My wife just delivered a baby eight weeks ago. We had our second, our third child, our second son, and the baby comes out, and, like, and it was all like, like a movie, because our other babies, it was all a little bit, some were quiet, or some were, and this one comes out and starts screaming and crying. It's just <laughs> like a movie. You know, yeah! And the little thing is wiggling around, and arms are flailing around, and it's covered in cheese. <laughs> and um, and uh, I said the same joke to my wife. We take the deliver the third baby, and my tradition is I look at my wife and I go, I hardly know you. <laughs> <laughs> I barely know you. And you know, we have our third child now. I'm like, I barely <laughs> and um, the uh, and uh, we have three kids in five years. It's pretty crazy. But, That's aggressive. Um, yeah. <laughs> I have one, no, I have one son who just turned one, and yeah. That's kind of aggressive. Though, it, you know, no, right? no. It's like you, you, I walk around with my son, and I'm like, I see people with multiple kids, and I'm just like, how do they do it? How do they do it? Like, yeah. I'm just like trying to function as an adult human, and that's a barely possible yeah. thing these days. But the same, it's about anything you commit to that you resolve. You sit there and go, that's who I am. You know, like I knew I wanted to have a family again if I could. To meet my wife and to be, I'm, I'm so lucky. My wife is truly, truly, I mean, people, all men feel like they want to like lather up their wife this way. But I mean, my wife is just an amazing person. She's a really, really kind. She's so kind and she's so good. She's such a good brain, caring. And she has her moments, believe me. I mean, there's times I'd like to leave her at the gas station <laughs> in the middle of uh, the desert somewhere. But, <clears throat> But thankfully, those days are very few. But um, uh, I said, use the bathroom in there. Yeah, just go ahead and use this bathroom. <laughs> Down the highway. But that's uh, almost never, I would say. But uh, I love my wife to death. I'm very lucky I know her. And I wanted to have a family. And now we have three kids. And, I, and it has impacted my life in some profound ways. I mean, there are people who have called me. Obviously, it's always this test, right? In the last three years since we've had these children, three of the most important people in my business have called me to come to work with them, by my measure, people yeah. I love. And they've called me and asked me to come work with them, and I couldn't do it because they, they didn't have the budget in an independent film to bring my family on the road with them. 
we didn't want to bring my family on the road because my older daughter's in preschool now. Uh, I didn't want my family to, I didn't want my wife to be taken out of her orbit for uh, the six months it would take to do a mini series for this cable company or this streaming service. And I guess that uh, in, in the theater, as with my personal life, it's just like I had to say to myself, when you're doing something that you really believe in and you really love, it's easy. I mean, I've gotten to that age now where I just accept that's who I am. I don't go to as many film festivals as I'd like <laughs> to and openings. Um, I'm not on the red carpet very much. I'm not. And my wife sometimes looks at me and I can tell that look where she's like, you know, being married to you, I thought you were like this famous I thought this actor, was be fun. movie star, TV star. We really don't do very much of that at all, do we? You know? And we have a very kind of normal life with yeah. the kids. But it's, I mean, to me, it's the great journey. It's the great journey to watch children grow up in this world in real time. And my kids, you know, my daughter now, my favorite thing now is she's very uh, uh, dramatic now. <laughs> she's very dramatic now. And she'll say to I wonder me, where that comes from. I know, yeah, but no, we, 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 my wife throws it in my face a lot. So my daughter <laughs> will literally, will, will go, she'll, she'll have, be flipping out and having some meltdown. And she'll be like, I want another daddy. I want another daddy. And she'll go, you're bad. You're bad. She sees this on shows. People are saying, you're bad. She's, she's imitating. Yeah. And then she takes a pause and she does this such a, this incredibly operatic little thing. She goes, you're bad. And she goes, you're bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. I can't believe it, you know. But yet, you say to yourself, my wife has taught me we, we, we enjoy that now. Yeah. We literally enjoy, like, this is a phase of child development and uh, my family's everything to me right now. My family's everything to me. I mean, work is something that has to fit in with that. Like, I, I hate to say this, but if I won the lottery in, in that kind of cliche thing, if I won the lottery tomorrow, I probably would work very little. <laughs> very little. I would work, like, not much at all. I do, like, one little thing every year. I think year. a lot I, of us would probably... Yeah, I just, be with my, I just want to be home with my family now. That's kind of where I'm at. Perfect. We were out of time. Big round of applause for Thank Alex. you all. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Next week, tune in to hear from Sarah Cooper. Sarah's a comedian and founder of the Cooper Review. Here's a little preview of what we talk about. Teach us all how to be better observers of people. For me, if I sit down at my laptop and just stare at a blank screen and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna write the most amazing thing right now, it never happens. That's not where the magic happens. Mm -hmm. The magic happens for me when I'm out taking a walk or at dinner or doing the dishes or something else and I'm just thinking about how I really feel about something or I'm observing something, somebody doing something. Like uh, I'd notice at work I would say definitely, like someone would be like, will you do this? And I'd be like, definitely. And then I'd be like, I actually meant no. <laughs> <laughs> and so I wrote a whole little meme about what definitely really means, because sometimes it does not mean definitely. So Rarely probably does it actually rarely mean Rarely does it mean definitely. So things like that, just observing yourself and just being like, oh, that's weird. I said that, but I didn't mean that. And how can I turn that into an observation that maybe other people can relate to?